0: 3 Breakfast acknowledges that we broadcast on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Burong people of the Kulin Nation. We pay respect to their elders, past and present, and acknowledge the continued residence of First Nations peoples in the face of ongoing colonization and settlement. We recognize sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty was never signed.
1: This is Three CR
2: Breakfast.
3: Alternative news, analysis, and current affairs. Monday to Friday, seven am to eight thirty am.
4: Holy double. Grab your hands.
0: (laughs) 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 Good morning, everyone. You're listening to Three CR Breakfast. How are we all today?
5: Very good, Grace. Yes, you're hearing my voice. All listeners, it's uh, Patrick here. I'm back. uh, Welcome back, my friend. How (laughs) have you you been? Uh, Very good. Uh, Very warm. Uh, it was it was good to get away, but a bit too warm. Grace, just a, just a little bit too warm. Where did you go? That oh, this is no uh, I went to I went to Greece, um, and uh, no, it was all good. I was not affected by the fires, if you're wondering. Uh, they're in uh, one of the they're in a bit of a different part of Greece to where I was, so I was fine there. But uh, it was very hot, um, and su- needed sunscreen. That was needed. Uh, most of the time. You Grace. didn't
0: get much of a tan, actually. No. So,
5: that was good. <laughs> no, no, don't tell the listeners that. Don't tell the listeners that, Grace. I did get a tan. Yes, I did. Uh, no, I, I made sure I was sun smart, and I followed our, our great friend, the duck, uh, who always says slip, slop, slap, because it's important uh, and key. Uh, no matter where you are around the world, Grace, who's got to put sunscreen on? Um, so, that's true, that's true. So, uh, even though my friends would be shirtless half the time at the beach, I would always wear a rashi out of pure safety of not wanting to get burnt, Grace. Mm. that's the worst thing you can't go you can't get burned like that's just the worst like mm-hmm, and, and mm-hmm. listeners will know uh you need to you need to put sunscreen on when you're you're pale and you and you're not as uh, olive skin um as as your counterparts
0: mm that's true that's true <laughs> yeah i'm always worried that i'll get tan cuz like i i don't, i really hate it when, it's, it when my skin's a bit uneven it's, yes. like the tones and also it's just a bit like and cuz mine takes forever to like go back to like <laughs> Yeah. the the proper like even one so I was just like yeah I need to really make sure I put my sunscreen on like you like even if you're here in Melbourne if it's really really cold like you still need to put it on your sunscreen oh because, like, I I'll tell you now the it's... UV rays are like, yeah they're just there <laughs> it's they're bad just, yeah in
5: the, in the middle of summer it can be 15 degrees as listeners will know it can be 15 degrees and you'll be the UV can be 11 so always recommend to put some sunscreen on always put a hat on if you can if you're working outdoors even in the middle of winter it's, it keeps your head warm so that's the key thing uh, but yes the weather was Quite warm for uh, this time of year over there, mm. and we're at, we're at some, we've got some fascinating uh, stuff happening today, Grace, on the show. So yeah, that will be weather, which actually is weather related.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of you uh, weather related climate topics going on. So first up, we're going to be looking at the final episode of Lost Damage and Denial mini series from Jacob Gamble of Earth Matters, also a fellow ex Breakfast presenter. But of course, they have also been giving us some amazing topics for us. So basically, Jacob spoke to Tristan Ward, a social and behavioural climate change officer at UNICEF from Barbados, about the climate losses and damages facing the Caribbean. And then also looking further at climate finance. And then Patrick.
5: Yeah, I'll be speaking to senior lecturer in climate science at Melbourne University, Andrew King, regarding the catastrophic weather which has been affecting the northern hemisphere. As I repeated in, our, in a bit of an intro, uh, there's been fires that have hit Greece uh, in the island of Rhodes and Corfu, um, and there's going to be heat records that could break the 50 years uh, ago, so that's pretty bonkers there. We'll also talk about the upcoming Australian summer, What could look, what that could look like. And also, uh, with all this heat around Grace, there might be an increase in turbulence with, this, uh, with you know, the impacted atmosphere. So, I'll get to find out from uh, uh, our Professor King uh, later in the show. Let's see. We're looking forward to that. And then, after that, we're going to be
0: listening to M and John from TCR's The Sporting Record, where they spoke with Peter about the book, uh, Peter Cullen, about the Red Lings football program where they shut in the book called The Power of Football. So basically, they, the conversation contains references to mental illness and suicide. So this may be distressing for some of our listeners. So if you want to tune in, tune out, uh, please feel free to do so later. And finally, we're going to be ending with a conversation from Annie McLaughlin from 3CR Solidarity Breakfast, where they basically caught up with Connor Flynn from Save the... Save the Preston market to hear about what's at stake and the next step in the campaign to save the market from developers. So yeah, big show, big show as usual. Yeah, interesting real, stuff.
5: Yeah, very big show. But we'll start off with some headlines, Grace. Some big news has come out of uh, overnight, uh, and uh, one of my headlines, which I've got just prepared ready, uh, a property developer loses the bid to block the release of the Victorian Corruptions Watchdogs report. Uh, the Guardian has reported. Uh, A property developer's bid to block the release of a corruption watchdog report on decisions at a Melbourne council has failed just days before the findings were expected to be released. The Victorian Court of Appeal on Monday refused an application from the property developer, John Woodman, for the leave to appeal an earlier Supreme Court ruling, which had dismissed his request to stop the report's release. The Independent Broad-Based Anti-Corruption Commission, or IBAC, was expected to release its operations sandown report this week, but Woodman would seek would, could still seek to take further action in the High Court. Woodman was publicly examined across six days of public hearings as part of the IBAC inquiry into allegations of corrupt conduct, including uh, involving councillors and property developers in the city of Casey. The, the corruption watchdog heard Woodman or his companies donated to several Labor MPs and Liberal and the Liberal Party ahead of the 2018 Victorian election. Lawyers for Woodman claim the public examinations caused unse- unreasonable damage and part of his evidence should have been given in private. Uh, barrister Jared Nash KC uh, said in the court uh, there was no invitation in challenge the decision. Justice Richard Nile said the reasons for the Court of Appeals decision would be published either uh, later on Monday or on Tuesday, which was yesterday.
0: And then flowing up to news regarding for casual workers, uh, f- according to Tony Burke, our MP, the casual workers uh, will have a new pathway to permanent work under proposed changes. So basically, the proposed change work will introduce a new definition of who is classified as a casual worker. This will be applicable to more than 850,000 casuals who have been working regular hours, and they will probably have a new pathway to permanent work. And Tony Burke will have already outlined some details in regards to Labour's pre-election promise to legislate a new definition of who is classified as casual work. The government says the change will close a loophole that keeps people classified as casual despite regular hours. Of course, this will be up to the workers to decide whether they want to convert to permanency and no one is forced and basically be given a choice to this option. And then f- going into a bit more nature news up in WA, thousands of pilot whales have beached in mass stranding east of Albani in western Australia. So basically a whale g- have been grouped in part of Chinese Beach before stranding, before st- stranding event with wildlife officers hoping to rescue as many ma- mammals as possible. Almost twice the number of whales have been seen at that beach since Monday, according to the owner of Chinese Beach Cavern Park, Alan Marsh. Alan Marsh quoted that probably about half an hour ago on that day, they have beached themselves. And they're probably still alive. Sorry, they probably half an hour ago on Tuesday, 4 p.m. local time, where they've probably beached themselves. And they're probably still alive, quoted, but they're so, and they're able to push a few out. Yeah, so that's all we've got for headlines today.
5: Yeah, some uh, big news out of there, and uh, that's a fascinating one regarding uh, the whale beaching. I did see a bit of a video of that, so quite bizarre, uh, Grace, isn't it?
0: Yeah, and uh, personally, when I first saw this, I didn't really know what pilot whales are. I've never really seen them before, but uh, there's really a lot of them if you just look, yeah. if you just watch yeah. the video you yeah. can you can check the guardian there as well there the video is there yes there's so many of them and hopefully they're all safe by now yeah
5: yes definitely it's definitely key and uh, and just something else quickly i did see was the guardian was reporting the Gulf stream could collapse as early as 2025 a study suggested so that's another fascinating uh, point there which i'll be discussing uh, with professor andrew king later in the show grace but we're going to go to our first segment. Um, Grace? Yeah,
0: so looking into a topic from Earth Matters by Jacob Gamble. So basically, we are looking at the final episode of the Lost, Damage, and Denial miniseries, where basically Jacob spoke to Tristan Watt, a social and behavioral change officer at UNICEF from Barbados, talking about the climate losses and damages Facing the Caribbean, this is basically part one of the mini series, and so we're just going to take a listen to that first.
3: Could you tell us a little bit about what are some of the losses and damages that you've seen currently, and you expect to see in the future uh, in Barbados?
4: I, I I'll probably kind of categorize by by climate impact and, and what the kind of cascading effect has been. Um, so you'll see me sing a lot of few. But in particular, um, I want to start with uh, drought. Um, you know, the current situation really is that, as we speak right now, we're in a moment of drought, like an official moment of drought since about the beginning of April. I do not, uh, I do not lie to you when I say that the rain has probably fallen for more than five minutes, like a handful of times since the beginning of, of April. So that's just to give you a, a sense of the, the situation. It's been a real lack of, of rain. And so, you know, we've had some kind of prohibitive kind of measures around water usage, and so on. And um, I think that's that's really kind of a, a a change for Barbados. We've always been a particularly water scarce country, make no mistake. But um, it's really been kind of uh, amplified by by the drought situation and the kind of infrequent rainfall patterns. And you see the impact that it's now really having on farmers, um, you know, and their ability to produce crops in this time. Um, And, you know, just trying to, you know, you read the news each day and you see some of the challenges that they have, knowing that this is really a new space for them. It's something that in large part, you know, many are unfamiliar with or don't know how best to respond to. And I mean, another impact we talk about with drought is is really um, this issue of fires, uh, grass and like bushfires. And actually, this year I would say is the first time it really kind of came into like the public focus. That kind of impact we had like chief fire officers you know, giving the numbers and saying that, look, these numbers are actually going up. And, you know, it's a concern, we have to be careful, there are actually instances where the grass fires are leading to house fires. And, you know, a lot of times we hear about these things on TV in much bigger places like the US, maybe even Australia, for example. But Barbados doesn't have that kind of space to play with, you know, doesn't have that kind of geographical size. And and landmass to play with. So I, I think this issue is particularly concerning and kind of changes the dynamic now when we really have to see how best we can respond. But um, that's, that's just the first impact that i like to talk about. Um, there's been another peculiar one in terms of sargasm seaweed. Um, this one's interesting. The connection to climate really is that um, ocean temperatures and kind of like, you know, runoff from different agricultural plants and so on. It's causing a bloom in the sea in terms of sargassum seaweed and the direction in which it's heading as well, because it hasn't always really been in the Caribbean region. But since about 2015 or so, we've seen it come and take up many of the coastlines across the Caribbean, Central and South America even, you know, um, and it's having a real impact. I mean, you talk about <clears throat> You talk about the rotting scent that you get when when it decomposes on the sand, for example. I mentioned there are a lot of coastal communities, so they have to deal with that isn't particularly good for your health. Um, There's also the issue of tourism and that impact a lot of hotel and kind of tourist-related properties on the coastlines. And I mean, it's been relatively seasonal. And I'd say that we have done or we are doing a better job of monitoring, you know, with early warning systems, so maybe being able to plan better. But in terms of actually ridding the issue, like the volume of sargasm seaweed we have is, is way more than any amount of equipment that we currently have at our disposal can handle. So it really is still a challenge that needs needs to be dealt with.
6: I've lived here all my life. Uh, my family, you know, we, my sister and I, we grew up here. The change is kind of drastic, um, first of all the water never used to be this far up so now the houses that are built
4: near to the beach when you have high tide it goes into their houses so far we've talked drought sargasm seaweed and i just want to touch now on hurricanes i think that um hurricanes is is probably the most known kind of climate impact we talk about when you talk about the caribbean um, because we're no stranger really to hurricanes um for, for for years now, um, but one of the differences you might see is in the strength of some of those hurricanes. So, you know, we're seeing maybe more like category five hurricanes. We're seeing a greater number of hurricanes in one particular hurricane season, for example. And we're even seeing in some instances, hurricane form, hurricanes forming at the, the earlier end of the hurricane season, as opposed to later down when we typically see them maybe August, September, you know, that kind of time. And um, I think in the instance of Barbados, it's really, really interesting. I think um, because we've kind of have had a very interesting positioning in the in the in the region where, in many instances, we haven't been hit by hurricanes. We might get it, you know, when it's um, kind of no farming and hasn't quite gone into a hurricane just as yet or gotten that classification just as yet. But in recent times, and 2021 was a real example, we got hit by hurricane category one as early as June. Um, Literally the first month of the hurricane season hadn't ended yet and we were in trouble, um, so to speak. And just to kind of position it for you, that was the first hurricane that Barbados had in 66 years. 1955 was the last time. So it really really is a different kind of change of of pace for us maybe in some instances we didn't even think that we had to worry too much about hurricanes but now it's a different situation and we also are always aware of the impact that hurricanes have had on some of our neighbors like I said 2017 with countries like Dominica and Antigua and Barbuda for example those impacts you know those They'll stay with us. So I I think it's important to talk about that there. There's impact on lives, communities and GDP. And, you know, we we have to spend the next set of years uh, recovering and never really kind of finding our footing or, or having the opportunity to properly grow and develop maybe in the way that we would like.
0: And that was part one of the mini series of loss, damage and denial from Earth, Jacob Gamble of Earth Matters, speaking about the climate losses and damages facing the Caribbean. We're going to be looking at the need for climate finance as part of part two. Let's take a listen.
7: The
3: climate crisis is going to impact everyone. uh, But there are certain groups that are going to be impacted a little bit more or a lot more and you touched on farmers before but i'm wondering which other groups do you think will be most impacted by climate change
4: yeah great great question honestly because um that's the reality um the the climate impacts aren't going to be evenly distributed across uh, any given society really and some persons some groups are gonna feel it in a different way and perhaps more um more than others as well and for me I think probably more than any other group in society climate change will have its biggest impact on children and youth. Um, I think it's interesting as well because um, you know ultimately as time passes we're the young people the children right now they're going to be the ones spending more time with these impacts so ultimately you, you have to deal with that a bit more. And then I think you couple that with the fact then that you have young people. Once again, within the society, there isn't that even kind of distribution, but also kind of geographically as well, there isn't an even g- distribution in terms of climate impact. So then you have young people or children and, and youth in, in the country, but then you're also in a particularly vulnerable country or region to climate change. So it's almost like it's, it doubles the, the concern or, or the worry and, So I think that's the situation for the Caribbean, you know, we're in a particularly vulnerable region. And then within the societal context, youth and children and youth are, you know, particularly vulnerable. So for me, um, you know, it's, it's uh, every time I have the opportunity, it's still something I like to touch on. You know, there are particular areas that are relevant for children, such as, you know, like health and education, um, water, obviously, and I think we need to pay attention to these kind of sectoral impacts and how children are, are, are coping even in, in these moments as well. But
1: um, yeah, if, if I had to say there was any one group, it would definitely be children in you. Climate finance to frontline small island developing states declined by 25% in 2019. Failure to provide the critical finance and that of loss and damage Is measured, my friends, in lives and livelihoods in our communities. This is immoral and it is unjust.
3: What actions would you like to see from global governments, particularly those from um, the global north, as some people describe it, in taking uh, climate action, particularly around climate finance?
4: Yeah, yeah, good question. I mean, um, you know, such is kind of the the imbalance of the whole climate change situation. Um, but I do think there there's several opportunities really to strengthen. Um, there's a lot more that could be done. Um, namely, you know, we talk about, you know, the COP event that occurred yearly, And, you know, at the last one, probably the most advanced we've gotten around, you know, um, loss and damage and for funding a facility. So I think that's, a, that's honestly given the kind of attention that cop gets and you know knowing that that was one of the big things coming out of the last one i think it would be really great to see you know some tangible movement and maybe um official establishment of some of these things whether it's a fund, facility or both um i think that would be a good place to to start but i also want to to take this moment to 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 mention um the Bridgetown town initiative or the Bridgetown town agenda as some people are calling it because i think it has great relevance here and it just so happens that you know it's named after the capital of barbados and it was you know um started by my prime minister uh, mia mia motley but it has great relevance here because really and truly it's it's an idea a real advocacy effort to to propose a new way of mobilizing international finance for particularly kind of crisis affected uh, lower income countries, such as Barbados and others. Um, I I think it really provides the opportunity to unlock some more financial support for countries who are on the front lines of climate change and some of the key elements that the initiative kind of advocates for would be like, um, you know, greater support from multilateral banks debt relief for for climate impacts and reconstruction grants to repay for losses and damages caused by climate related disasters and i I found that you know i don't want to say surprisingly because you know small island states you know true you know groupings like eosis and so have always have had a, a pretty large impact on this whole climate discussion but it feels like once again we're seeing from a different angle perhaps this time you know, this this conversation around the British initiative and agenda kind of entering into the global global discussion and having having some movement. So I think if richer countries, you know, their governments um, could take up some of these things a bit more and, and run with them really and truly, um, that would be great to see. Um, I think more broadly, um, I think more broadly, we just need to also just put people more at the center of climate action. I think there's a lot of discussion on raising, you know, adaptive capacity of sectors and and so on. But I think there's there needs to be the focus on raising the adaptive capacity of the different groups of people in society as well, because as we've talked about, you know, even in a few moments, you've mentioned Australia, the impacts are already here and we need to see how best we can protect persons. So I think I'd, I'd kind of leave it at those three things.
1: The central banks of the wealthiest countries engaged in $25 trillion of quantitative easing in the last 13 years. 25 trillion of that 9 trillion was in the last 18 months to fight the pandemic. Had we used that 25 trillion to purchase bonds, to finance the energy transition or the transition of how we eat or how we move ourselves in transport, we would now today be reaching that 1.5 degrees limit that is so vital to us.
3: The Prime Minister of Barbados, Mia Motley, has been a firm advocate for more climate finance for small island developing states. On the other side of the world, in the Pacific, it's a very similar story of vulnerability to sea level rise and an absence of strong action from the global north.
0: That was an amazing conversation by Jacob Gamble of Earth Matters, speaking to Tristan Ward, a C- social and behaviour change officer at UNICEF from Barbados, for the final episode of Lost, Damage and Denial mini-series. If you want to listen to the rest of the mini-series, head to 3 Earth Matters. And you can also catch them live every Sunday from 11am to 11.30am. I'm going to be glued into a song now. This is called Get Up, Stand Up by Bob Marley.
8: Get up, stand up. Stand up for your right. Get up, stand up. Stand up for your right. Don't give it up, don't give it up
0: Amazing motivational song for early morning for our listeners to get up and go, get get your life going today. (laughs) And so, yeah, that was Get Up, Stand Up by Bob Marley. Patrick, your turn. Yes.
5: uh, So now I'll be speaking to uh, senior lecturer in climate science at Melbourne University, Andrew King, regarding the catastrophic weather which has been hitting the northern hemisphere, especially Greece at the moment but we'll also be discussing the ongoing uh, climate crisis and what could be the Australian summit for 2023-2024. Andrew, good morning. How are you this morning? Good, thanks. Thank you very much for uh, jumping on 3CR with us.
7: No worries,
5: thanks for having me on, Patrick. That's okay, Andrew. So firstly, Andrew, uh, the weather at the moment is quite unpredictable and quite chaotic as we've seen overseas and some of the images that we've seen with Greece, for example, having their worst heatwave since 50 years ago, Uh, Switzerland and Italy having storms that are just leaving a trail of damage and gale force winds that are are quite bonkers uh, for this time of year. Just give us an idea of, you know, we know this is all about this is an issue that's occurred uh, you know over the time over twelve months eighteen months twenty four months ago with climate change um, and it's a real thing uh, wh- what's your what's your fear of what's going on right now andrew
7: um so yeah we're seeing really bad extreme heat events across much of the northern hemisphere at the moment and and in the last few weeks um, seeing really extreme heat across all the major continents of the Northern Hemisphere, um, including in the southwestern US, in North America, in southern Europe, and uh, in parts of China. And we're seeing extreme rain events happening in different places. So that's basically being um, fueled by an atmospheric pattern, um, which is very kind of stable and kind of allowing um, weather systems to, to linger in specific places and driving up the temperatures in some places, and driving you know, extreme rainfall in other places uh, where, where there's low pressure systems hanging around. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's it's obviously very concerning. It's a, a pattern that we think is becoming more likely as um, the world warms. Um, So it's partly related to human-caused climate change, just just the the fact that we have these weather patterns. And then on top of that, we've got um, just warming of the planet through our greenhouse gas emissions, which is increasing the uh, frequency and intensity of extreme heat events like we're seeing across all of the northern hemisphere continents.
5: Yeah and it's it's quite alarming it was interesting I've been reading a, an article in the economist uh, which uh, put their title of too darn hot uh, they said cities need to respond rapidly and plan carefully to minimize the damage done by heat waves is there a way where cities like Athens for example and and Rome or Melbourne and uh, and Sydney are there are ways that they could minimize um, their carbon footprint? And two, is there a way that they could um, make sure that they're not going to be impacted by the future extreme weather events?
7: Yes, yeah, so certainly um, everyone has a role to play in reducing the carbon footprint. Uh, at the moment, global greenhouse gas emissions are at record high levels. Um, so, you know, we all need to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions, but it needs to be led by national governments, um, but, you know, city Um, governments also have a a, a role to play in reducing emissions. In terms of cities kind of reducing the impact of heat extremes for their residents, um, there is quite a lot that can be done. Um, Changes in kind of local environment make quite a big difference. So if you have lots more trees um, and bigger parks, um, rather than having so much um, Pavement and concrete everywhere, that can make a huge difference, actually. But, you know, in the face of continued global warming, we are going to still see worse heat extremes affecting our cities. And like the background cause, the, the human-caused um, climate change due to our greenhouse gas emissions is what we really need to tackle.
5: Yeah, definitely. And it's something I find interesting. Why do you think governments keep justifying the use of fossil fuels now? We've, we've seen it with the Albanese government. Uh, there's been a push for uh, an access to other uh, mines across WA and also in South Australia. Uh, do you think we're having our own, I don't know if you're familiar with the movie Don't Look Up, which uh, had Leonardo DiCaprio and Margot Robbie, uh, not Margot Robbie, sorry, Jennifer Lawrence, getting confused with Barbie. <laughs> um, do, do you think we're having our own don't look up moment in, in that sense?
7: Yeah, kind of. I, I think um, it really struck me that uh, you know people... So with the, the wildfires in Greece, um, which we know that fire, weather is being exacerbated by uh, human-caused climate change, And we're seeing, you know, people fly in uh, to Greece and um, flying out again for their holidays and kind of complaining about fires. And It kind of does feel like people aren't drawing the connection Mm. uh, between, um, you know, what's what's behind these extreme climate events and um, their their experiences. But... um, yeah i, I think in, in terms of the australian government and um the opening of, of uh, new coal mines and, and um fossil fuel resources it it's definitely we we really need to get away from fossil fuel um resources as quickly as possible uh we we have other means of generating electricity so we need to very quickly decarbonise that sector. I think the reason that you know, governments kind of stuck with it is because it's kind of the easy option. Um, it's harder to kind of transform um, an economy and, you know, there's lots of people work in these sectors, but it, it's something we need to do. Otherwise, we're just going to make the planet uninhabitable in a, a few decades' time and many so we we need to really quickly move away from fossil fuels.
5: Yeah, totally right, King uh, Andrew, and I think it's you're spot on in that in that sense um, in in that space. do Do you think the media has a role to play in this as well, Andrew? Like do you feel that do you feel that the the mainstream media has not provided the realist images, And I think is something that I'll lead to my next question regarding the summer that we could have in Australia. You know, I think I think I had a conversation yesterday with a colleague of mine regarding um, this actual interview, and I said, uh, and she reminded me about last year's weather systems before the summer we had, um, which was quite cool, and people were a bit bizarre by it. Even though, it, well, I'd say that we had a few, we had a few very warm days uh, before. Before that, we had you know record-breaking rain and probably the worst floods that you could possibly have. Um, that hit Melbourne and and Northern Victoria. Do you, do you think that there's a bit of a complacency and forgetfulness of all these events occurring one by one?
1: Um,
7: yeah, I think there's there is a bit of a lack of focus on climate change given the scale of the problem, and I think um, mainstream media could could um, play a bigger role in communicating the risks of our continually changing climate. In Australia, it's really quite tricky because we have a really variable climate and you know we see these extreme rain events that cause big um, floods happening in our, in our history, um, both in indigenous records and um, in our instrumental records mm. um, that go back to the late 19th century. Um, but yeah, we do know that our extreme heat events are getting much much worse. Um, we can see really strong trends in those and we can relate them back to human-caused climate change. And I think um, often people, you know, look forward to summer. It's, you know, in Melbourne at the moment, it's it's quite chilly and people, <laughs> people think, oh, you know, it'll be good to um, have some summer heat. But I think we often, yeah, we often do forget just how bad it can be and... Um, we've seen some reminders of this with the, with the Northern Hemisphere, mm. extreme heat. We had our own you know, black summer 2019-2020 when we had the really bad bushfires through parts of Southeast Australia. That's kind of a reminder of, of what summer can bring and uh, what we should be prepared for.
5: Yeah, definitely. And do do you think that the Southern Hemisphere's summer will model very similar to Northern Hemisphere? I will say this as well. And with listeners, you know, both hemispheres do have a bit of a different in the the heat as well. Like you know, Australia's heat is less. I can you know, it's less dry than than let's say Europe, for example. Am I right here, Andrew?
7: Um. So it depends exactly where you are. Like, yeah. um, if you're, um. I mean, certainly the, the heat is quite humid in parts of uh, Italy and um, some, yeah, coastal parts of the Mediterranean at the moment. And, you know, when we have extreme heat in Melbourne, it's usually quite dry heat. Yep. But it's, um, yeah, there are there are lots of differences. The Northern Hemisphere is a lot more land than the Southern Hemisphere, and that affects the weather patterns that cause extreme heat events. So they're a bit different in the Southern Hemisphere as well. You wouldn't get the exact pattern that we're seeing in the northern hemisphere that's delivering this extreme heat in the southern hemisphere. But yeah, it's well. So it's hard to tell what the summer will bring because you know our weather forecasts and our prediction systems don't really allow us to go, um, you know, a few months ahead and tell us kind of what extreme weather we're we're going to get exactly. Mm. Given the um, move away from La Nina conditions, which were partly um, causing the extreme rainfall we've seen the last couple of uh, years, uh, last three years or so, um, probably towards El Nino now, that does raise the, the chance of having a hot, um, dry summer. Mm. And yeah, it's it's reasonably likely that we'll see some some warmer weather than we've seen in the last few summers and um, more extreme heat events. Um, But it's hard to say exactly uh, what we'll see. The the other problem is we might see worse fire weather conditions as well, Um, because we've had um, lots of vegetation growth over the last few years with the wetter conditions. Mm. Um, If that dries out and we get the weather that kind of fuels fire spread, um, then uh, that could be a problem as well
5: yeah definitely and it's hard to predict as we know Andrew what do you just out of curiosity what do you make of the Guardian they reported this morning that the Gulf Stream could collapse in 20 by 2025 which is near Antarctica uh, uh, just give us an idea of what is the Gulf Stream if you if you're well aware of it and also what could that mean if that does collapse by 2025
7: um, So I, I think this is based on a study that just came out which I think, that is kind of a slight simplification of what the study shows but Mm. um so the gulf stream is um a current of uh warm ocean water that goes up um the uh, northwest of the atlantic ocean towards and then kind of turns towards europe and it's part of a bigger um ocean circulation system called the Atlantic meridional overturning circulation, which this study was, was examining. Um, and there is a fear... That there's been a fear for a while that it, it appears to be slowing down a bit and becoming less effective at distributing heat. Um, there's, so this new study, I think, provides another line of evidence that we should be worried about this. Um, it's... Yeah, there's certainly... I, I think the broader... Implication is that you know, as we warm the planet and kind of push the planet out of um, you know, kind of outside the realm of what it's been like in the past, um, mm. we could see unexpected changes as well. We we could push elements of the Earth's climate system into a, a different regime beyond what, what we call a tipping point, mm. and that um, could have um effects that are hard to predict, and that's a concern for climate scientists because it's hard to simulate these things um in our climate models, and it might mean that we could get you know far worse changes in um well worse changes than we than we predict.
5: Yeah, definitely, and it's, it's hard to model. As you're saying to me now, Andrew, it, it seems to me like it's hard to predict what the weather's going to be at the current time of of this year and uh, going into it, so it's fascinating in that sense. With all this increased heat as well, we know that the atmosphere itself will uh, be warmer and uh, a much more uh, denser place uh, in terms of its air mass. Do you think that will have an also an, an impact on air travel? It was something I found on my trips uh, across to Europe Um uh, in terms of a lot of turbulence um, and not just your normal little bit of turbulence, very bumpy turbulence. And, um, tur- and you know, we know what turbulence can do to, to aircraft in terms of how, what that can cause. Um, do you think that's something that should cause an alarm as well?
7: Um, yeah, so there is. Um, so, so, you know, we've had turbulence in the atmosphere for a very long time um, and, well, for always um, and this has always been an issue for air travel but there is some evidence to suggest that climate change is making turbulence um, a bit more common mm. and that is a concern because turbulence can um, cause injuries on on uh, flights and um, you know it's a problem for airlines as well so Yeah, I I mean, some of that could be counteracted by better forecasting and um, avoiding kind of areas of of turbulence. Some of it's quite hard to detect Mm. and hard to avoid. But, um, you know, as our forecasting capability improves, I suspect that some of the climate change driven increase in turbulence, um, we might be able to better avoid the turbulence through advances in technology and understanding as well. So um, it's quite hard to tell, though.
5: Yeah, definitely. Well, Andrew, we, got, well, that's just, we ran out of time. I love your chat. It's been fascinating. We'll, we'll, um, we'll have to bring this up another time, Andrew. You've been excellent uh, this morning uh, discussing all things climate and, and the weather. I'm, I'm fascinated by it, and our listeners will be as well. So thanks very much for coming on.
7: No worries. I'm happy to have been on.
5: Thank you. And that was senior lecturer at at Melbourne University in climate science, Andrew King, discussing all things weather and the uh, ongoing climate crisis, which is affecting the world at currently.
0: That was very interesting stuff, Patrick. There. Yeah,
5: it's uh, it's very fascinating, Grace. It's quite um, it's quite scary in, in a sense, isn't it?
0: Mm-hmm, yeah, and I I think i have never really considered before on like how it's going to affect the turbulence because I. Because what I understand is that usually that only happens when it, I mean, it only gets worse when it, whenever it's like raining. So like, never really think like heat will come in relation with all this. So it's quite interesting, yeah.
5: Yeah, it's it's fascinating in that sense. I, I think, I always remember as a little kid, turbulence would be if you're over the equator and that would be the only point if listeners know, know what I'm talking about. You have the seatbelt sign get turned on when you get over the top of Malaysia or Indonesia and... Uh, from there you'd be comfy and calm, but um, now it's it's seeing that as our planet is warming, um, sadly that that nice little calm flight that we l- like to have and as I'm a ner- I'm a bit of a nervous flyer. I, I do like to be nice and calm. Uh, it's not happening as as normal and um, you know those those things are it's it's quite scary because we know turbulence has seen unfortunate plane crashes and uh, it's just another factor in the ongoing climate crisis which, I think us humans need to hurry up and get on with it because I don't really want to be seeing uh, those images in Greece uh, hitting our shores anytime soon.
0: Mm. And I think that's a bit just for me because I live in Malaysia as well. So, <laughs> oh no. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I mean I've mean, taken the flights before many times, but you know, it's always been very a great flight because we have great pilots. So that's a good thing as that's well. The so key. I, think, I think one of the key things is also really ensuring that we have really stable planes and also yes great pilots. So that's very important there. But of course, nothing climate is climate is a nature itself, you know, we can't that's we, we we can never predict what will happen with it. So yeah, let's just hope for the best. Definitely. Yep. So now we're gonna be heading on to a conversation from M and John from 3 C R, the Sporting Record, where they spoke to Peter Cullen about his book called the Power of Football, and they basically talk about the personal stories of uh, some 30 people who have benefited from Reckling's root football program. So Reckling is an organization that provides sport and recreation programs in to disadvantaged Australians to create life-changing opportunities. According to Reckling, and Peter Cullen is the Reckling's founder and director, one of the simple ways to evoke change is to put footy in someone's hand. So let's take a listen.
9: We're here to talk about the uh, RecLink book, which is called The Power of A Football. What's the What's the uh, meaning behind the title, The Power of A Football?
2: Well, uh, to be honest with it, it's just such a, a powerful game. And um, from the earliest days of um, RecLink footy in 1989, we used it for that very reason within our community. It's amazing cultural power. Uh, it's been a, a tool um, that behind the... Um, I guess the glamour and the, the public um, enormous public interest in Australian rules. There's what we call third tier football that we've been doing since um, 1989, and we've seen that the huge social impact. And um, we found that the game on the streets of St Kilda in 89 reminded people of people's better life memories. So. Fantastic conversation starters to get to know people mm, mm. who were doing things, uh, doing it di- uh, tough, you know, and um, it was a great way to connect with people. It, it's, it's powerful in so many ways, um, and there's so many stories to illustrate that. But
9: um I think you were very clever back in that time, seeing you've taken us there, to actually start with uh, a great Aussie tradition, which is kick to kick. Mm. So you didn't start playing games, you just got some
2: guys out on an oval and have a bit of kick to kick is that right yeah the the informality um of sport i sort of observed was was really powerful um and people don't want to share their concerns or they may not have shared their concerns for a long time but to get together informally it it becomes a trust builder through time and structure and Turning up and inviting is very powerful in people's lives who may not have had a lot of invitations over their life connected to uh, opportunity. People came there at a low point in their life. St Killer in 89, when I was doing the street outreach, they experienced trauma, found more um, trauma. Uh, constant conversations were... Um, suicide and, uh, and overdoses and people said a lot of things that were starting to add up to me that sport and recreation could be very powerful if they could access it I mean a man left prison that I met uh, on the street he really didn't have much so that's not an uncommon story that when people leave hospitals drug and alcohol rehabs it can be a very uh, stressful uh, stressful period and if they can have something they can enjoy and access this man said I've got energy to burn nowhere to burn it my head feels like exploding on the inside um, and then another man um, uh, we went out to the uh, house theatre I took a group out in a bus and uh, he was experiencing homelessness and schizophrenia And maybe foolishly, I look back, I said to him, um, what are his goals for the future? He said, Peter, I don't even know what to do in the present, (laughs) never mind the future. So that was very grounding. So I thought something immediate that people could access. You've got to make things as accessible as possible. And enjoyment in people's lives, I think, is really important, uh, particularly at that point. And Australia, we all love a kick-to-kick uh, I've always loved the game and uh, got great life uh, out of the game. Whether it was watching, going to, going to the football, I could never think of anything more exciting than going to watch football. At 12 years of age, I would somehow get myself into the rooms and. Um, they would say, um, you know, let the little bloke through, and I'd have a crew cut and people would be running their <laughs> hand over the head. And, uh, you know, I'd get to see Peter Piano on the bench there, you know, making this amazing spiel to was players. In those days it was... So the game began to capture me from very young. I never had a ball out of my hands. I started, you know, all the time I had the football with me uh, during school, after school, kicking the ball over the, uh, the wires... Um, Kicking with anyone who, who who was around, it was just so deeply embedded in our being, really. So yes, it, yeah. Anyway, we, these so for kick- these
9: blokes on the street to say, "Look, come come and have a kick with me in the park," something they, to do during the day, somehow they use up some of that energy.
2: Well, people responded really well to to that. Um, and that was, I I was blown away even by the numbers that started and kept coming, how we were able to form a team of an unlikely looking footy team, if I can put it that way. I remember the priest Ernie Smith saying, we're going to have to cut out this football after the first match or two, because <laughs> everyone was hobbling along, I've seen all these people hobbling along Grey Street. <laughs> And he said, we might have to cut out this footy, Peter. Everyone's hobbling along Gray Street coming to the meal with Sacred Heart Mission, just have three or 400 people. But he he grew to love it and appreciate it to the point where he said, Peter, you should be doing this full time. This is really working. They're they're absolutely loving this and they made their own gold flags and we borrowed and lent um, resources. I remember the presbytery being absolutely packed to take a group to Osdenham House uh, to play our early games. but um,
9: I wanted to ask you uh, about that first game that you your team played against the Osnum House guys uh, in the park opposite Osnum House and it made me laugh, the story about uh, everyone's ready to go and you wanted to do the traditional thing and have a coin toss.
2: Yeah, well, so I, what happened there? Well, I discovered there wasn't a, a cracker between the lot of us so he could have turned us all upside down including myself i never used to carry around a, a lot of money and i think people all thought that that, that might have been wise at that <laughs> stage but um uh yeah no. right, let me
9: tell you a story from my experience Emma hasn't got a word in yet but you'll uh, i'll get you to do a reading in a sec yeah um so as i told you before i coached a team uh out at lilydale for a season in Rick link and it was a great experience but uh, it was a long way for me to travel from Airport West over to Lilydale, And one day I was running a bit late for the game. It was a game day. It was a home game for us. And I got there in time, but only just. So I jumped out of the van and ran inside and organised the guys, and out they went. And that's where we played and lost, as usual. And uh, at the end of the game, the guys were all sitting around. There were a few girls, but it was mostly guys, uh, eating their pie and drinking their can of Coke. And... Uh, I said, well, i better go now. So I went back to the van. of course, in my haste, I'd locked my keys in the in the car. Right. So, so I went back and I said, listen, is there anybody who can break into a van? So I think 36 hands shot up in the air. <laughs> so I had the right yeah. crowd. So let's have a taste of the book, in
10: Yeah, absolutely. So I think um, something that I really enjoyed about the book was, and we discussed this a little bit earlier, but um, how... It isn't a necessarily just a historical, factual account of how it came to be, which part of it is, and that's important, but it really shares a lot of um, very powerful stories um, of participants and people involved with Recklink, which has been fantastic to read and I think a really wonderful part of the book. Um, so I just wanted to share this little um, excerpt from it to do with Michael Walsh's uh, story with Callista Cooper, So, this excerpt starts, They call depression the black dog, and let me tell you what the black dog truly feels like. It's like being in a room in complete darkness, putting your hands on the wall, looking for the door, but there is no door. There's no escape. That's very much how I described my illness in those early times. Through an invite to join a game of Recklink footy, which took me five weeks before I could even get out of the car at the Oval, I slowly found reconnection points to bring myself back from the brink, and went on to find small joys, volunteering with their footy league, and eventually stepping into a rewarding full-time job with RecLink. This is my story.
2: Yeah, it's a very powerful story, and he has an insight that's probably worth sharing. Um, he realised intuitively that if he he didn't get out of the house, he'd had quite he'd had a massive personal um, breakdown. He had brothers who were trying to support him he had family who were very supportive um he used to you know he he wasn't really leaving the house there for a period and uh, our coach um, one of our coaches at the sunbury phoenix uh, brian millett would phone him up and phoned him up multiple times and uh, he wasn't able to sort of respond to that at this point um, but as he said, he turned up at the ground five times before he got out of the car. When he walked across the ground, he realised at the end of the day, he he picked up that there was a lot of people who had a whole lot of life challenges, but who probably had very little or no support. And, and that football team, was he could see how critical it was. And he felt he was doing valuable work. Uh, He could see that that structure could mean everything as almost as a family for some or a second family. And, um, yeah, he he goes step by step. um, And it's a wonderful story that's been put together uh, about him. But one of the things, a quote that he loved and is in the story, you alone can't do it, Hmm. but you alone must take the first steps and that quote really impacted on him and it allowed him to get out of the house um and to sort of rebuild his life he became one of our uh became a really great worker for us
10: yeah i noticed um i was actually going to uh bring up that quote as well because it that for him he said that he realized he needed to take to help himself which is great but then also being able to do that in a community that supported him is also incredibly crucial, which was really lovely to see how that then played out from there, you know, take the first step out of the car even. Um, yeah, that was really wonderful to read. And all throughout the book as well, a lot of quotes like footy being better than medicine um, and someone else saying a vaccine that you can see. And that's a common thread throughout. But like how do you think, how... Why is footy so powerful in that way, do you
8: think?
2: Uh, I, I have my own thoughts on this. I think where um, 30 years ago when we were starting this, what I observed on the streets of St Kilda is that people were in deep isolation. They were not accessing anything, really. Families, sporting clubs, work, and they were really vulnerable. I think it's a great um, protector of the vulnerable to get a, a structure that brings you out of that and that you really... Um, that you really uh, enjoy, um, but one of the the girls in the in the book, um, she wasn't allowed to play footy at school. Um, she would had tr- a lot of trauma in her life. Um, she uh, and as a result of that, started doing a lot of um, self harming. She the principal. Um, she was asked to go to the office because she started playing footy with the boys so in that young life she never got to play she said all her life she waited to be able to do what Reckling was providing for her with uh, footy, cricket and doing a whole range of things she became a great character, she won our league medal Um, but towards the end of the story um, they asked her what she got out of football she said Just forget how she words it, but she finishes it. um, I'm not sure what would have happened, but I do know this. It wouldn't have been good. Mm -hmm. And, you know, on other occasions, she's said that it saved her life. It's not uncommon in nearly all or most stories to pick up some threads of that. It's either extremely life-giving or it saved their, their life.
0: And that was M and, oops, sorry, my bad. Lost the sec. Yep, sorry about that. Uh, anyways, so M and John from GCR's the sporting record, spoke to Peter Cullen, the Red Link founder and director, about how one of the simple ways to evoke change is to get to put footy in someone's life. And so they talk about the personal stories of ter- some thirty people who have benefited from Red Link's football program. So, if you wish to speak with someone about any of the issues mentioned in this interview, you can always call Lifeline on 131114. And for mob-only support, you can call 13Yard, called 139276. And... We're going to be going to an announce, announcement just for a moment. So left-wing activists from the campaign against racism and fascism will hold a protest this Saturday, 29th of July, against a two-day recruitment event being hosted by the National Socialist Network in San West. The protesters will stand up for the rights of migrants, refugees and LGBTI, LGBTQI people and against racism. The Nazi, event, the Nazi recruitment event is advertised as a white, power-lifting meet combined with seminars and speeches, and they will be held by the National Socialist Network in partnership with the previously defunct group European-Australian Movement. So Community Group Campaign Against Racism and Fascism, also stands for CAF, are saying enough is enough. The anti-racist and anti-fascist protests will be held at the gym itself during the event. Jasmine Duff, the rally organiser, has said, Never again. That's our message. Neo-Nazis are dep- des- desperately trying to build a following and they are doing it in the heart of one of Melbourne's most multicultural suburbs. We're protesting to show that we stand intransigently against Nazism and against racism and bigotry in all its forms. We are fighting for a world where no one has to live in fear of racism, uh, in fear of racism, fascism or oppression. So yes, if you want to head down for this event, please do so. It's happening this Saturday, 29th of July. And if you have any, if you if you have any information or you want some inqu- inquiries, you can contact calf organizer Jasmine Duff at zero four two three two zero two. 638. Or if you can't do a call and you want to email, that's also fine. That's at jasmine.duff at uh, Duff, D-U-F-F, at gmail.com. And yes, the rally details, just make sure it's at 2 p.m. And you, we're going to march from March on the gym there at IGA Car Park, Sunshine West. So yeah, remember that it's 2 p.m. Saturday, 29th of July, IGA Car Park. uh, Sunshine West So yeah I'm gonna be going into a song now This is gonna be an interesting song Called Peggy Lee By General Special
8: It wasn't that trekking our way by the water for me me and Peggy Lee I, we drove our way alright. Right, all right, all right, all Sam's spilled red wine on that theater.
11: Everyone who wants to be involved in whichever part they want to be involved in. For more information, go to fnbmelb.noblogs.org. Food Not Bombs is a 3CR supporter.
2: In DigiTube, people, place, language, connecting stories, culture, and language across Australia. Contribute your content in DigiTube.com.au. Sign up for a free account and select your options for streaming. Download and broadcast
1: promotion.
11: A 3CR supporter.
10: Focus on Myanmar, art, music and resistance. Join Past the Mic Media at Black Spark on Wednesday the 26th of July for a presentation about art, music and resistance since the February 2021 military coup of Myanmar featuring a statement and music from Chaw Chaw and Myanmar punk band, The Rebel Riot, the photography of 2023 World Press Photo Award winner, Maok Kam and a presentation in Q and A with Myanmar photographer, Mako Nang. Tickets are on a sliding scale via Humanitix. As always, no one turned away. More details are available on the Black Spark event page. Focus on Myanmar, art, music and resistance. 5.30 PM, Wednesday, the 26th of July at Black Spark. Hosted by Past Mike Media, a 3CR supporter.
0: You're listening to 3CR 855 AM. If you wanted to know about, that's a song called just now. That was Peggy Lee by General Special. So we're going to be looking at a conversation by Annie McLaughlin from 3CR Solidarity Breakfast who caught up with Connor Flynn from Save the Mark- Preston Market. Save the Preston Market Action Group is a community group of Dar- Darabin residents fighting for their local community hub, the Preston Market, to be protected and, peace- and placed under public control. The group is actually giving up for their next big event on August 12th. So we're going to be listening to about what is at stake and the next stop in of the campaign to save the market from developers. Let's take a listen. It's been a long
11: battle to uh, raise awareness about the saving of the uh, Preston market. Why is it important? Tell, tell everyone why it's important first. We'll start off.
6: I mean, it's the beating heart of the northern suburbs. It's more than just a market. It's a vital community hub, um, which brings people together from all walks of life. It's a It's a communal hub. It's a trading hub. And it's bloody important to not only just the northern suburbs, but the entire city itself. You've got people who come from all across Melbourne to enjoy the sight and sounds of the market, whether it's people watching, whether it's having a burek, or a going to the deli or greengrocers or, you know.
11: Yeah, just generally speaking. And the plan by the, and interestingly enough, this public asset, this community asset is on privately owned land.
6: Well, that's right. It's always been privately owned when it was first set up by uh, Polish migrants in 1970. And the current owners, Salter Medic, they've owned the site since 2004. But it's important to realise that the Preston market has long been seen as a site of development, not only by property developers like Salter, but also the state government. Um, And so they've been biding their time for the last 20 years, waiting to strike to develop that site to maximise profits. Now they've tried multiple times over the years, but they've been forced back by community opposition. Remember when Richard Wynne was the planning minister, the state government at the time were trying to develop the site then, but they were pushed back. And again, there was a bit of a lull. um, And initially, the state government and Salter saw eye to eye. On what to do with the site but again there's been blowback from the community which has led to this current situation um which is very volatile
11: so tell us about the uh the last public meeting the big public meeting that was held at the council uh, building
6: so that was held in late may now it's important to realize how far the campaign has come since 2021 which is the latest iteration so there was a, a consultative um, committee hearing where members of the community and property developers um, presented their case. And that occurred towards the end of 2022. Um, there was a state election, of course, where the Labor Party almost lost the yeah. safe seat of Preston due to the issue of the Preston market, um, which brought enormous political pressure on the Labor Party and the new member, Nathan Lambert, himself a former Clear Bachelor of the Year contestant. And there has been a number of actions. So there was actions outside of his office, actions outside the planning minister. Oh, and, and also, it should be
11: remembered, he was helicoptered in.
6: That's that's true. That's very true. And so all these actions have led to the state government actually announcing in early April that they would um, want to protect the market um, and they were going to introduce a heritage overlays. So in that context, we held a meeting. In May, um, where the community came together to outline their concerns to hand over petitions to the local MP, where more than 30,000 people um, supported a campaign's to pledge to, for the state government to publicly acquire that site. And since then, the state government um, have kind of been biding their time. They say that they'll save the Preston the market. Um, the planning minister said she'll introduce legislation to introduce a heritage overlay. Which
11: sort of, I have to say, sounds a little bit like my previous interview. Uh, We won't cut down any old growth forest in Victoria. That sounds like an absolute, doesn't it?
6: Correct. But- <laughs> so that's so the government, you know, they say they're going to save the market, but they've done nothing since. And now you've had Salter come out. They're not very happy because this will produce their profit margins. Um, the state government says if any development is to occur on site, um, they're not going to give Salter 2,200 luxury apartments that no one can afford. They say, okay, you can still build around the market, but we'll allow you to build 1,400 apartments. So that's where Sam Terracio Sr. and Sam Terracio Jr. have come out and said, um, as a result of the government's announcement, we um, are going to close down the market in January 2024.
11: Wow, they're just going to give everybody notice and tell them to piss off?
6: Pretty much. So you've seen it's creditor. A-
11: this is their preemptive attack. Mm. Or as a previous part of the show talked about, which is forward defence, which is really attack.
6: Well, oh, I mean, when you're capital, you throw your weight around, and that's exactly what Salter are doing. They're renowned for doing this um, if developments don't go the way and they're trying again with Preston Market. So at our meeting, we used that to to express our opposition to to Salter, but also to the, put pressure on the state government that the only way to save the Preston Market and the only way to ensure... This valuable asset is maintained, and that traders are given security is to publicly acquire it.
11: Yeah, right. Okay. Well, just let's go back a few steps. You said that they had this heritage overlay. What did that actually mean?
6: Look, I'm not a I'm not a planner, despite starting an urban planning degree. Um, but there's a lot of weasel words like legislation. It's all entirely up for grabs. Um, it can mean anything to anyone. But um, well, they could put
11: up a sign saying mm. that this used to be the site of the Preston Market. Hopefully not. <laughs> no, that's exactly right. So um, they've done this preemptive strike, and you said that they—it's actually now reached the Financial
6: Times. That's correct. So they've uh, the, they're, the big, ma-
11: they're being sooks.
6: The mouthpiece of the world in class in this country, the Financial Review, published an article just a few days ago where a sole trader at Preston Market um, wrote a very explicit letter to Salter Medich um, who accused um, Sam Tarasio Sr. Who, for our listeners out there, Sam Tarasio Sr. has so much wealth that he's among the top 3,000 richest people on the planet. Wow. If he really wanted to, he could afford a trip on Ocean Gate. This is how much money this man has. And this is how much power he has. It's astronomical. So this sole trader said that you're throwing your weight around like wealthy bullies, intimidating the working class storeholders. Maybe you and your father should reflect on the hardship his Italian parents and your grandparents would have endured in trying to make a go in a new country and be more empathetic to the plight of storeholders at the market, which greatly upset Sam, he took to LinkedIn um, and said, I'm really hurt by this. I'm really hurt that anyone could say this about me and my business.
11: Really? Correct. Yeah, yeah, right. Uh, um, it's a thorn in their side, quite clearly.
6: Well, it is. I mean, when you're impacting with their profits, of course, it's going to hurt. Mm-hmm.
11: Well, uh, just remind listeners, you're on Solidarity Breakfast and it's 3CR, your community radio station, and we're talking to Connor Flynn about Save the Preston Market. So what happens next, Connor? What's going on?
6: Well, the, the campaign's in holding position. We're still waiting on the state government to um, come through with their um Their announcement made in early April, Um, just last week, there was a protest outside of Sonia Kilkenny's office where she caught wind and didn't allow community members to come in. Um, The campaign does have a number of... Who is she? Sonia Kilkenny is the planning minister. Um,
11: Sorry, I didn't know.
6: Who does? I mean... Who does?
11: <laughs> yeah. In fact, they should employ you guys to uh, because they rose their profile.
6: Absolutely. So we're just in holding position and we, I think for all parties involved, not only the community, but for traders, um, we want an outcome very, very soon. So we're planning an action called Hands Around Our Market for August 12, where people can come and do a physical display of solidarity of wrapping our hands around preston market to show how much we love and support our vital community asset
11: what's the time
6: um it starts at 11 o'clock just outside of preston market but i think that you know the right to urban space is really important and people understand it and when we do organize we can win and there's countless examples you know i said this when i was last on free cr that there's Examples in this city in you know, the last decade or so of when, say, public housing estates, when the Bali government threatened to sell off the open space, residents organised... Oh, it's
11: going over in Yar- Yarraville where they want to put a, a, a basketball stadium on the uh, the longest uh, unfettered um, uh, free land for public space.
6: And I believe the CFMEU has said they're not going to work no. on that side as well, so you got that recent example, the East-West Tunnel campaign, of which I was involved in, of when people physically stopped test drilling at various sites around Fitzroy, which in turn put enormous pressure on the then Knapp fine Liberal government, also the Labor Party, to completely abandon that project. The campaign to save Footscray Park, where Melbourne, Melbourne victory, I should say, Um, A
11: private private concern.
6: Absolutely. And I think that... Just stealing public land. And at that meeting as well, there was a huge appetite that, should it come to that, that people are willing to engage in in, in community pickets and direct action to actually fight to save the Preston market. It harks back to what the BLF were doing under the leadership of Jack Mundy in New South Wales and Norman Gallagher in Victoria back in the 1970s of where all of these vitally important sites in our community... Um, think of Queen Victoria Market, think of Carlton Bars, think of The Rocks, etc. The only reason why they are remaining in place today is because of, of, pe- of when ordinary people stood up and said, no, we're not going to allow big business to dictate how and which we live in our communities.
11: Well, it's fascinating, isn't it? Because these people are so wealthy, they can live anywhere.
6: Absolutely. Um, but I don't think that's...
11: That's the point.
6: That if uh, Sam Tarasio um, and their family, I mean, I don't think they'd want to live in a shitbox box apartment that they're eventually going to build if they just if they built it at the Preston Market site.
11: Well, fourteen. I was going to say. Well, I don't know if they are going to be shitboxes, boxes, but um, I'm just uh, we'll ju- jump in there. But fourteen hundred flats. I, I've stopped calling them apartments. They're flats. <laughs> um, that's an awful lot on that space.
6: I mean, you kind of... The Preston Market's a big site and there's a lot of car parks and, look, Council have put forward an alternate proposal, as has the campaign, to save the Preston Market as well, while we're retaining the market site of where development can occur, as long as you keep the market exactly where it is, give it upgrade it, repair it, whatever needs to be done, but... You can have appropriate development, emphasis on public public housing, which is exactly what we need in this country. Um, do, do you
11: think it's a bit little bit like, um, you can't tell me what to do?
6: I mean, he is giving off those vibes. I mean, if you have the time, you can read his entire LinkedIn post, um, if you're into LinkedIn, um, where he's pretty much saying, yeah, like, I'm a rich man, I should be able to do exactly what I want, but the community and the government aren't allowing me to do so.
11: Yeah, suki, suki. Uh Anyway, so we should hands around Preston Market, August the 12th,
6: 8am. That is correct, and if you want to get involved with the campaign, we have a Facebook post, we have an Instagram account, and a Twitter page as well, so please feel free to um, email us or reach out to us on any of those platforms.
11: Thank you very much for coming in and updating uh, us on this important issue, this very important issue.
6: I mean, the right to urban space is bloody important and we have every right to have a say over how we run our communities.
0: And that was Annie McLaughlin from Solidary Breakfast speaking with Connor Flynn from the Safety Preston Market Group. The group's next big event is Hands Around Preston Market. It's this, ah, uh, it's not this Saturday, sorry, it's on August 12th, Saturday at 11 a.m. And if you want more information, you can head to www.savetheprestonmarket.com. So that's it for today's show. That's been a lot of yeah, we've
5: got a lot of uh, different stuff there. And if you want to listen back to it, all you can can do on the podcast. Just go to 3cr.org.au, and then you go to podcasts, go to W, go to Wednesday Breakfast, and you can listen to us uh, anytime, uh, anywhere, anyplace. Uh, so that'd be really good. Uh, also, another um, announcement, I've got Grace, um, which is happening tomorrow. Uh, 3CR's Talk Back With Attitude show, um, which I'm a co-producer of. Uh, which kicks off at 10 a.m. to 11 a.m., hosted by Dr. Joseph Toscano and Patricia Kaur. We'll be broadcasting live outside of Barack Beacon Estate in Port Melbourne. That has been a big issue. Um, Margaret Kelly, uh, she's holding on. Um, They had a VCAT decision, so I think uh, the eviction notice has been given for August 7, so we're having a live broadcast outside Barack Beacon in Port Melbourne, uh, the corner of Beacon Road and the Boulevard in Port Melbourne, if you can come. Uh, that would be excellent. If you can't listen in at 10 a.m. to 11 a.m., and give us a call as well, be great. Um, and just you know, uh, come along and support uh, a great cause. Um, so yeah, that's that's uh, just a little announcement from me. Uh, Grace.
0: Yep, and then uh, just to mention again, there will be a. Uh, There will be a protest held this Saturday uh, against a two-day recruitment event being held by the National Socialist Network in Sunshine Sunshine West. This is organized by left-wing activists from the Campaign Against Racism and Fascism, also stand for CAF. And the protest will stand up for the rights of the migrants, refugees and LGBTQI people and against racism. Basically, the Nazi recruitment event was uh, advertised as a white powerlifting meet combined with seminars and speeches. So, and this will be, and this, uh, as I mentioned, was held by the National Socialist Network. National Socialist Network is a neo-Nazi white supremacist organization who have been trying to build their gym in Sunshine West since last year. There have been significant opposition from the community, including the above mentioned rally in sunshine earlier this year uh, which was co-organized by a campaign against racism and fascism, fascism and political party victorian socialists they have recently attempted to disrupt youth queer events and an app original rights event on january 26th and were also involved in a campaign against a drag storytelling event at Mount Nash council library that was cancelled. Consult- That was cancelled by the council after repeated threats that were made to librarians, council staff and councillors. So, yeah, they've basically been quite disruptors towards many events here in Melbourne. So, yeah, CAF is out again to help to stop these people from doing what they're going to do. So, just to also add, this rally is happening this Saturday, 29th of July at 2 p.m., and it's gonna march starting from the from the gym of the the, the neo nazi group at IGA Car Park Sunshine West. So yeah, you can also hit to Facebook to uh, learn more about this event. If you have any information you want to know uh, more, please contact calf organizer Jasmine Duff D U F F at zero four two three two zero two six three eight.